If you have a copy of the Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up as usual. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 9 together this morning, so ninth chapter of the Bible. Uh, after I share a few uh, welcome things and announcements, that's where we'll be this morning, the first seven verses of Genesis 9, so you can start to find your way there. Uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, especially if you live here locally, uh, we're grateful that you're here with us and hope that you've already been ministered to through the singing and maybe through people you've gotten to start to meet, uh, trust that you'll be ministered to through the word here and your time with us but we would love to know who you are I mean especially if you're not a Christian but even if you are and you don't have a church family uh, and you're looking for one we'd love to get to know you a bit better so if you could do us a favor and help us get to know who you are by filling out a connection card you could do it digitally follow that QR code uh, it's really easy to do or you could fill out on paper as well on the back of your program and take it out into the lobby later and take a left out there uh, some folks would love to receive that and start to get to, to know you a little bit but we're grateful that you're here with us. Uh, two other things before we turn our attention here. One, if you are a college age uh, student or seminary student, we're having our monthly lunch for you today, actually, that we call the outlet. Rather than hosting it uh, at someone's home, we're actually hosting it here over on this side of the building after the service. So after you mingle and talk with people, if you want to head over to that side of the building, uh, that's where lunch will be on us today. So our treat as you get ready for finals week uh, and whatnot, uh, we want to be an encouragement to you. So you'd be welcome and encouraged even to go to that. And the other thing I wanted to acknowledge is as we come to today's text, we're going to cover some, at least one subject that's quite controversial in Genesis. These early chapters seem to have a lot of controversial subjects. We're trying to do a few times this spring some things we're calling deep dives on Wednesday nights where uh, taking subjects we can't always address in a sermon as thoroughly as we may want to. Uh, we're trying to tackle some of those on Wednesday evening. So a couple Wednesdays from now, on March the 6th, we're going to do our second one, and we're going to backtrack towards some of the early chapters of Genesis and talk about the subject of the historical Adam. Was Adam a real person? He and Eve, were they real singular human beings as the head of the human race uh, or not? And how does that interface with theories of evolution that are popular in our world and even among some corners of the church today? So I would encourage you to come to that, come with a learning posture, come ready to, to grow and learn, to ask questions, and we'll do our best to wrestle with that subject, see what the scriptures teach us, and stand firmly upon that. So, But that'll be uh, at 6 o'clock on Wednesday, March the 6th. So you can mark your calendar for that. All right. If you have found Genesis 9, uh, I, I have uh, been thinking this week of the experience that I've had. I think most human beings have this, this experience that we've come to refer to as deja vu. Uh, I was trying to think of a corny way to like say a similar sentence again or something like that to trigger your mind into this. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Like where, I've, most of you I'm assuming, like where there's this experience we have where you feel like I have seen this before. Like I've been in this room Maybe you feel that right now, like I've heard him saying this stuff, like he, he's going to tell me about Jesus again today, and yes, I will. Uh, and that, uh, but it's this French phrase, which I don't know French, that I think means something like already seen, like that you, we have this weird experience where I feel like I've been there before, seen that, heard that. Uh, this text this morning, I think, especially if you've been with us the last few months as we've gone through this book of the Bible, some of it's going to feel like deja vu. There's, as God addresses Noah, as he talks to him, there's going to be some very intentional echoes of what we heard back in Genesis 1 and 2, where God was talking to Adam and talking to Adam and Eve, and it's very 
much on purpose. Like, I think God, through the author Moses, wants us to have a feeling of that. Like, this is, oh, I've seen this before. I've heard this before. And so it's going to be kind of a, a second Adam that we see God dealing with, the second head of the human race. And so uh, you're going to hear some notes you've heard before uh, if you've been with us. And I think that's good and important for us. But there are going to be some different notes as well. So it's going to be kind of like that deja vu experience where I feel like I've heard this before, but there's something different that's not quite the same uh, as it was before. So where we find ourselves this morning as we continue going through Genesis, we're in Genesis 9. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 here in a moment. But where we find ourselves in human history, it's still very early on in it, is post-flood. Uh, so the last few weeks we read about the narrative of the flood where God brought judgment upon the world uh, that was prompted by just rampant wickedness amongst the human race. And the one thing that really gets airtime before the flood is violence. That the earth was filled with violence and God brings his judgment upon the entirety of the human race. And even upon the animal kingdom uh, in the flood. But he preserves Noah and his family and this host of animals that are upon the ark. And last week what we saw, Pastor Larry preached for us. Which thank you brother wherever you are uh, for opening the scriptures last Sunday. But we saw Noah and his family and the animals disembark. They, they left from the ship uh, and Noah offered sacrifice. And what we heard at the very end of chapter 8, if you were with us, the last several verses of chapter 8 was what I would call God's internal dialogue, uh, where it said uh, that in verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma from the sacrifice and the Lord said in his heart, certain things like I'm not going to flood the earth I'm not going to destroy it like I did Uh, so it was like kind of God's internal dialogue but what we're seeing today as we continue into chapter 9 is we're going to see the more outward dialogue of God what he says actually to Noah to his family as he as he forms this covenant with him he had told him even before the flood I'm going to establish a covenant with you now we see him actually doing it this agreement and we're going to hear the God God speaking to them and we're of this covenant we're going to hear kind of the human side of it what God is asking what he's requiring of human beings as they go back out onto the earth next week we'll see God's side of it what he promises what he puts himself on the line for but here in these verses we're going to hear what he says to the humans as far as their side of the covenant uh, what they are to do uh, how they are to operate as part of it so I'm going to read this for us Genesis 9 verses 1 through 7 the last several weeks I've developed a habit this is deja vu probably Uh, I'm going to, after I read a text, I'm trying to make a practice of saying, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, And then if you believe that to be true, after I say that, you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. Okay, so let me read this for us, Genesis 9, 1 through 7. Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continues this way. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I wanted to share a few preliminary things, observations from this text, and then we'll dive into it uh, more thoroughly. Uh, But a few things I wanted to point out is uh, there are a lot of similarities between this text and what we read months ago in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I wanted to point out what a few of those are, and then we'll see the things that are different, the notes that are are different here. So if you were with us in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you may remember some of these things. Uh, So here we have God blessing the human beings, right? We saw that back in Genesis chapter chapter 1, that God blessed the first human beings. Here we have a command from God twice, just like he had given back in chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, right? So that's a repeated experience. In verse 6 of today's text, just like back in chapter 1, we have this poetic description of the image of God being in human beings. That appeared back in chapter 1. It appears here again, this poetic kind of set off the text and talks about the image of God. Right? Then from Genesis chapter 2, there's some echoes that we hear in this text today where uh, things that have to do with food. Right Back in Genesis 2, when God made Adam, he told him, essentially, you can eat of any tree in the garden, right? Like an abundance of provision of food. And here, God is telling him, now you can eat of all this meat. You can eat of all of these animals. So there's this wide provision of food. But then there's this prohibition related to food as well, right? Just like back in the garden, there was a don't eat. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here, there's another prohibition about eating. Like don't eat meat that has blood in it, right? There's another parallel, you have this threat of death, right? Back in Genesis 2, God had said, if you eat of that tree, death will come to you. Now God is saying, if you take the life of a human being, death will come to you. So there's a lot of echoes, a lot of similarities. Moses very much, and God very much, is wanting us to see Noah as a second Adam, as a new head of the human race. But there's a huge, massive difference between Noah's situation and Adam's. Right? And that is that when Noah is walking off of the ark, uh, he is walking into a sin-filled world, right? to a fallen world. Even though God has wiped it clean in some sense with the flood, sin still remains. So we should expect as Noah walks out into this world that there's going to be some differences of how God tells him to live, how God tells his descendants to live, than how he had told Adam and Eve to live. There's going to be some new wrinkles, some new things at play here. Last preliminary thing I want to say is this text has bearing upon you. It has bearing upon you as a human being Uh, because God has whittled down the human race very painfully now to just Noah and his family and these commands that he gives to Noah are for all mankind. They're not for some subset of mankind or some fork in the family tree of humanity. These are commands given to the head, the new head of the human race uh, that have bearing upon us. Uh, so this, is, uh, this text has everything to do with you and me and every human being that has ever lived. And so I want to walk through this text. There's, I'm going to have three main points today. Uh, normally I have kind of a heading and then some subpoints. I'm just going to give you the points as we go today so you can follow along. Uh, but we're going to see that God... As he gives the human side of this covenant with Noah, we're going to see him give commands about how we relate to animals, 
about how we relate to fellow humans. And then by the end, I want to deja vu, tell you about Jesus again and what this text has to do uh, with Christ. So first I want you to see from this text what God, I think, intends is that you are to have a respect for the sanctity of animal life. And that may sound weird to hear from an evangelical pulpit, uh, but that is true. And I think you see it in this text, that you're to have a respect for the sanctity of animal life. Uh, God, uh, th- through, no- or through Moses, starts in verse 1, talking about blessing and his command to be fruitful. We'll return to that in a moment. But I want to really focus on, in this section, verses 2 through 4. Uh, verse 2 to 4, to this call to respect the sanctity of animal life. So before, uh, the, before sin entered into the human race, back in the Garden of Eden, animals and humans had peacefully coexisted, it seems, right? Like God in Genesis chapter 2 had brought this parade of animals before Adam, and I don't think he was nervous they're going to kill him, or that there, there was this peaceful coexistence of humans and animals uh, in the Garden of Eden and in that pre-sin world, but that has long since evaporated. That has long since gone away, and it's made explicit here in verse 2, isn't it? There's no longer going to be this peaceful coexistence uh, between man and animal. God says uh, through Moses, uh, he he records uh, his words to Noah that he says, the fear of you and dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird and every creeping thing and all the fish of the sea. So do you hear that language there of fear and dread? Uh, that, those were things you would have not heard back in the Garden of Eden, but they're realities now. As they walk off of this ark, there's going to be this, uh, what do you, you call it, like an adversarial relationship between man and animals. There's going to be harm that could be done between them and will be done between them. Uh, but what you see God talk about here as he continues on is he uh, offers... he to provide a few things for human beings and their relationship with animals. First, he offers human beings protection from animals, right? He says that the fear of you and dread of you shall be upon them, right? So there's this idea now that animals, not because we are some big, intimidating people with fierce teeth that they just see and run away, but with many animals and many species, and I'm a city boy, I speak largely out of ignorance of this, but when you go out into the wild, most animals are not coming up to human beings, they're scattering from them. There's a fear of of human beings that's not based on our intimidating stature, our fierceness. But uh, John Calvin, he talked about almost like that there was this idea of God having a secret bridal on animals uh, that that leads them now in this post-flood world to not come and attack us because they could if they wanted to. Uh, the, The individuals and groups, they could team up and do that, but there's this restraint God gives to them. Uh, That's a God-given restraint where they scatter from human beings, where they don't use their violence, their capacity for strength against us. So God offers protection from animals, but God also offers what I would call provision via animals. If he offers protection from animals, he also tells the humans here that he's going to provide for them via animals, that there's going to be things, ways that they benefit humanity now, even in ways that they did not before the flood. So in, in, chapter, or in verse 2, at the end of the verse, he says to Noah, he says, into your hand they are delivered. So God's saying, like, I'm giving them into your hand. I think that could mean a few different things. It could mean to eat, which we'll look at in a second, to eat. But it could also mean to utilize or to use, like to have dominion over that, uh, that we don't just treat animals as potential food, but they can benefit us by their work. 
and by what they can provide for us, right? That we can tame them, we can utilize them. Think of cattle, sheep, uh, horses, things like that. Uh, there's this uh, rule that we can have over them and we can exercise over them as human beings. But part of that provision beyond that is an eating of them, a consuming of animal meat as part of their diet. This, you get into this in verse 3 where God says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Then he expands and says, As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So God now, we, I don't know that we can say for certain if human beings were eating animal meat before the flood. It, it, we are not told that one way or the other, but here what we get is a definite post-flood God giving permission to do so, right? That, that he's telling this new head of the human race and his family and all of us as descendants that there is freedom to eat the meat of animals. And, and it's by and large, even though later in the Bible there's going to be in the giving of the law some restrictions of what they're not allowed to eat that are more specific, here what you get is this wide freedom to eat, right? That's where God starts is this wide freedom to eat of any type of animal, to eat the meat of any kind of animal. And so God offers protection from animals and he offers provision via animals. But what God calls humans to do in response is to show great respect to the animal kingdom. Uh, that, that we are to show a, have a high regard for them, show a great respect to them. And you see that in verse 4. Uh, after he says you can eat any of these animals, in verse 4 he says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So blood in the, in the scriptures and in many societies, it symbolizes things. It symbolizes power, vitality, strength, all these sorts of things. There's something sacred about the lifeblood of a creature uh, that's running through you, that's running through particular creatures that God has made. There's something sacred about it that God is wanting human beings, you by extension, to recognize and to respect. Uh, that there's a, a dignity to any creature who has lifeblood in it. I think we all know this experientially, that there's a difference between a dog and a dandelion, right? Or uh, there's, a, there's just a difference between something that has blood coursing through its veins and something that's a living thing but that doesn't have blood, right? There's something about animals, creatures, that is different, that has a unique dignity to it. And it's not, this command about not eating blood, I don't think it's just about like the physical properties of the blood, like it's going to make you sick or something like that. That may have been a small part of it, but it, more of what it gets at, even explicitly in verse 4, is he's equating blood with the life that it symbolizes. That, that there's a, a dignity, a value to the things that have blood coursing through their veins that we are to respect. And so when it comes to eating, these human beings and we by extension, we're not, if we're gonna eat of animals, we should do so in a way that shows respect for their life. Right? Uh, that we should not just go about it, the, the killing of them, the consuming of them, however we see fit. We're not just to simply, as vile as this may sound, just go and hack off limbs of an animal and consume it and just let it suffer and try to continue living. We're to respect the life of the animal that we're about to consume. And if, if they were to, to kill an animal to eat, they're to drain its blood, not to drink it. Right? They're to, to let it drain out of it and then consume the meat from it. And I think this is illustrative. These commands about how to eat are il illustrative of how to treat animals more broadly. There's a commentator from a few centuries ago named Matthew Henry. 
uh, who said this about these early humans and about us too and how we relate to animals. He said, though they were the Lord, though they were lords of the creatures, yet they were subjects to the creator and under the restraints of his law. They must be lords, but not tyrants. They might kill them for their profit, but not torment them for their pleasure. And so what, it, what he's saying very clearly uh, to Noah here is you're allowed, I'm giving you freedom to eat of these animals, but as you do so, as you even kill them in order to eat them, you are not to do so that is reckless and haphazard and disregarding of them. I have made these creatures and you're to respect them as living creatures with lifeblood in them. And so just a couple quick application points. One, this, should, this text, I think, should affect how we eat animals. If you're one who consumes animal meat, which I'm assuming most in the room are, this text, I think, should affect how we do that, uh, the attitude with which we go about doing that. I think we have, based on this text and texts that follow, read Acts 11 sometime if you want for further study on this. I think we have freedom as Christians to consume the meat of animals uh, that was given here uh, post-flood, that's, that's continued throughout the scriptures. Uh, we have freedom to consume animals uh, of all kinds, but when we eat of animal meat, I would say that we should do so, and I'm saying this to myself, do so in a way that is cognizant of the life that had to be taken in order to sustain mine. And I think often I'm guilty of this. It's just out of sight, out of mind. I see meat ground up under uh, saran wrap type of stuff at the grocery store and I just buy it and I forget that is from a cow whose life had to be given. If you're going to eat a hamburger for lunch today, it came from a cow. If you're going to have a bacon sandwich, thank God for the pig whose life was given so that you might eat of that, right? And that that could feel kind of humorous, but I think that's lost on us, that that we have slowly had a disregard of the value of human life or of animal life. We'll talk about human life in a moment. So this text should, I think, affect how we eat of animal meat, that there should be a thankfulness, a a sobriety even, without getting morbid uh, in our hearts, a a thankfulness to God for his provision of that, uh, even at the cost of someone else's life. But I think this text also more broadly should affect not just how we eat animals, but how we treat animals as well, uh, that there is a respect that we should have for them as those who have lifeblood in them. That's what this text is saying. I think it has application for more than just how we eat. Uh, think of your pets, yes, but think of if you have a farm, the animals on your farm. Think of animals you encounter in the wild. Uh, any type of creature that has lifeblood in it, those creatures are created by God. They're, they're deserving of respect. They're not to be treated with neglect with mistreatment or taking advantage of them, harming them, uh, all these sorts of things. We should care about them. We should look after them as we have opportunity. We should tend to them with love and attention, not in a way where we try to raise them to the level of humans because we're going to see God treats human life differently than animal life. But we should have, I think, a higher regard for animal life than we often do. So in these covenant stipulations here, as God tells Noah and us uh, what to do in this post-flood world, he tells us first to respect the sanctity of animal life. But the second thing, and this is more important, is he tells them to have, and us, to have a respect for the sanctity of human life. Uh, This is going to be increasingly significant, these points. So the second one is even more important than the first, that we're to have a respect for the sanctity of human life. And this, I think you can see in the other verses we haven't covered yet from this morning's text, both in verse 1 
and then down in verses 5 through 7, that we're called to respect the sanctity of human life. And this is where God spends the most time with Noah, so I'm probably going to spend the most time on this section this morning. I think in this text you see three ways that God calls us to respect the sanctity of human life. And I want to address those each in turn from this text. Now the first way I think that we are called to respect the sanctity of human life, uh, that's in verse 1 and then in verse 7, is procreation. Uh, We might not think of it that way, but uh, a way that we show that we really believe in the sanctity of human life is by the act as married couples of procreating, of seeking to bring image bearers into this world. Uh, This text this morning, verses 1 to 7, it's bookended, isn't it? The the commands in verse 1 are very similar to what are in verse 7. That's on purpose. It's like a unit that goes together. And they're, they're very similar commands to what God said to Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, right? To be fruitful, multiply, uh, fill the earth. He's saying those commands again in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then down in verse 7, he turns attention to Noah and his family again and says, you, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so human beings, remember this, remember the context, Noah is walking off the the ark, right? And remember, he knows full well the reason God just flooded the earth was not because of the animals, it was because of humans, right? It was because of their sin, their rebellion against God. And so you could maybe start to think, and some people still think this today, that maybe a humanless world would be a better world. Right? Like maybe this would just be a better place if just the animals kind of did their thing and they spread out and ruled over it. Maybe even Noah is wondering that. Like we're the ones that messed this up beforehand. Like do you really want us to be multiplying? Do you really want us to be spreading out over this earth again? Uh, but in, in his day, maybe people would have thought this. Uh, in our day, I know there's people who think this, that a humanless world would be a better world. Uh, but it is most definitely not. Uh, I was watching, uh, this is an old movie now. I think it came out when I was in high school or college, the movie The Matrix, if some of you know this. There, there were, I was watching it recently, and there was a line in it. I don't have time to explain the whole uh, story, but uh, essentially it's a setting in a, a dystopian type of world in the future where artificial intelligence has taken over the world and they view human beings very poorly. They just start utilizing them to to, uh, keep their own uh, lives and energies that they need. But there's this one representative of the artificial intelligence who starts talking to this actual human being named Neo. And this is what he says to him. He says to the actual human being, he says, Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment. But you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed. And the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. And then he says this. I remembered this when I first watched it and it flashed in my mind again when I heard it this time. He says, there's another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? And he pauses for a moment and he says, a virus. And he says, human beings are a disease, a cancer on this planet. You are a plague. And he says, and we are the cure. And so there, there's some people who still believe stuff like that today. They, they think that we are the problem with the earth, that we should restrict ourselves as human beings. We should scale back. 
God says a resounding, sends a resoundingly different message to Noah. Like he doesn't say just keep humanity as small as you can and just let the animals spread. He says multiple times to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? Increase greatly on the earth. The world without humans would not be better. Human beings before the flood and after the flood and today are the crown of creation. Like we are the ones that God has entrusted if anybody's going to do it. We're the ones that God's entrusted to care for this world, to tend to it. And we do a poor job at times, but we have a place at the top of God's creation uh, that, that we are to rule over it. And part of recognizing that dignity and value we have is the very act of procreation, of bringing children into this world, right? So God says the opposite of what that agent said to Neo. He tells him, I'm blessing you still, and I'm commanding you to be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And I want to just say briefly, and I know I'm about to address a bunch of subjects as we go through this last bit that are going to open up a host of questions or counterpoints you may have to things I say. I totally get that, but I want to still say these things uh, as we go. On this subject, I, I want to encourage those that are married couples in the room or eventually to be married couples in the room that I, I would say this, uh, that unless the Lord providentially hinders you from doing so, I think you should seek to bear children and to bring them into this world and to raise them to love Christ. Uh, there is a sobering reality in our country and all over the world in many places right now where birth rates are just on the decline. The last about 15 years in our country, and our state has not been far off this, there has been a decrease in the birth rate of 22% over the last 15 years uh, to where we're even below what people call the replacement level uh, of that uh, as women bear children, they do the math, need to have at least a few children for there to be a replacement of the current people uh, that are on this planet. We are well below that even in our country. That's a sobering reality. And hear me, that there, I think there is freedom and latitude uh, for married couples in how they seek to obey this command, how they seek to live it out. There's freedom and latitude. There's, praise God, there's not specific quantities given here, right? Or like quotas or something like that. God doesn't give uh, things that we need, like metrics we need to aim for. And I, I do think that there are legitimate financial, emotional, psychological, even like missional things that you should consider in the timing or quantity of children. And the Lord may providentially prevent you from being able to bear children. Uh, that's a, a painful reality that many walk through. But I think as Christians, but as human beings even more fundamentally here as part of this covenant, we should resist being driven by considerations when it comes to childbearing, uh, considerations like, saying things like, I don't want to bring children into this dark world. This was a dark world. And they're saying, bring children into it, right? I don't think we should be driven by considerations that just say, I really like the flexibility that childlessness affords us. Uh, that should not be the driving thing as we contemplate the bearing of children or that I just want to be able to be freed up to focus on my marketplace work and so we're not going to have children. Those are not reasons to forego the bearing of children. And I, I say this very carefully. Voluntary singleness is viewed as a good and noble thing in the scriptures uh, that, that can be chosen by men and women for missional purposes. Uh, that is affirmed within the scriptures, but voluntary childlessness by married couples is never spoken of. 
And it's definitely not spoken of in an affirming way. Uh, children are a gift from the Lord. Read Psalm 127. And we're commanded as married couples, as the Lord allows, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so I am not saying get married as young as you can, have as many babies as you can. That is not what I'm saying. But I don't want to neglect the fact that God says multiple times, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, that there's a dignity, a sanctity to human life that we can join in recognition of by the very act of procreation. So that's the first way that we respect sanctity of human life. But what this text squares mostly on is how we deal with the killing of human beings, how we handle both our own anger toward people and how we respond when people are killed. So the second way we respect the sanctity of human life, according to this text, I would say is by our restraint. Uh, the restraining of our anger, the restraining of ourselves when we're tempted to strike or even to kill. So in verses 5 and 6, God really zeroes in on this subject that we may call capital punishment uh, in our day. And what he's more explicitly saying is what we should do when someone takes the life of a human being, right? which we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but what's implicit behind it is uh, the very simple reality that God is calling us to restrain our anger. Right? If the consequence is severe, then it's a call to us implicitly to restrain ourselves and not do the act that deserves that judgment. Right? That we're to actually restrain our anger. Uh, remember, violence had dominated the world before the flood. It was widespread. Uh, violence dominated the earth before the flood. Right? Uh, and what we see here in this text, and I think this would have been so sobering for Noah to hear as he walks out of this ark, is that even though God had wiped, washed clean in some way the earth, people were going to kill again, right? Like that, that the sinful bent of the human heart, even the potential for killing, did not go away with the flood. It, it stayed there in the sinfulness of the human heart and Noah and his family. That potential was there. And God is, is telling, he's giving directions about what to do when killing happens. Right? I think this would have been an incredibly sobering thing for Noah and his family to hear. And if the consequences are so steep for the, for the killing of a human being, the subtext of that is that you ought not to kill, right? That, that you are not to kill. Because uh, the, what, one thing we see in this text too is that even though the potential to kill made it through the flood, so did, praise God, what you see in verse 6, the image of God made it through the flood as well. Uh, that, that as Noah, what would have been encouraging for Noah to hear as he walks out of the ark and his family to hear is that we still have the image of God within us. Uh, that we have not become some animals or some just creatures. Like we still have dignity as people. That's why God says at the end of verse 6, God made man in his own image. That's why killing is so important, uh, so significant. Why the consequence is so significant for it is because we bear the image of God as human beings. And so we, the image of God may be marred in some way. It may be flawed in some way, broken in some way in us, but it is still present in us, right? It's present in you. It's present in every human being you will ever encounter. And that's what makes us different than the animals, Right? We share lifeblood with them. Right? Uh, we both have blood pumping through our veins. There's similarities to us in that way. There's a dignity that's shared, but there's a difference. There's an increased nobility of human beings. And we are to respect that more in human beings even than we do in animals. 
And that recognition of the image of God alone should be enough to restrain us, like to hold our hand, but sometimes it is not. Uh, We raise our hands in violence or in rage towards other people. But God is calling us to restrain ourselves. A couple words of application on this front. The most obvious, most simple, is we are not to kill. Uh, You, as a human being, are commanded via this text to not kill a fellow human being. And I think most of us in this room have not and probably never will face an intense temptation to do so. Where, like, we joke sometimes, like, oh, I'm going to kill that guy. We don't usually mean that. Uh, I recognize that. One one issue, I, I almost don't want to talk about this, but I do want to talk about it because I know probably in this room there's people who've already faced this temptation or maybe done this or will in the future, but, and we rarely speak about it. I think the one type of killing that we are tempted towards as human beings is the killing of the unborn, the, the taking of a life before the exit from the womb has become prevalent in our culture uh, and around the world. And there's a, a temptation that we can face as human beings in that moment, where we're, whether we're the mother or we're the father or we're a parent trying to, to uh, help them make decisions. There can be a temptation to diminish the life of that, that baby that's in the womb and to think because it's unseen that somehow it's more okay for me to end its life. And there's this temptation that, that can grow within us, whether it's based on shame or fear, to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the life of this baby. And I would want you to hear in preparation for that temptation, because it will come to some of you. I know it has come to some of you already. Do not take the life of that child. Like, do not take the life of that, that child. This command has as much to do, I think, with raising our hands in violence towards people we're furious at as much as it is to, to taking a knife toward the unborn that we have out of sight and out of mind that we're fearful of the consequences that may come in our life. And so we are not to kill any person out of anger, out of fear, out of shame, out of frustration. But I think this text should apply more broadly to us beyond just not killing, is that we should have a deep respect for fellow human beings that that calls for more than just not killing, right? Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, like, you think the baseline is just don't murder he says, no, like, don't hate them. Like, don't, don't even speak ill of them in your heart. Like, don't mistreat them. Because murder, even if that's unthinkable to us, it is downstream from sins and temptations that feel more okay to us, right? Of anger in my heart toward this person or speaking ill of them, cutting them with my words before I'd ever consider cutting them with a weapon, right? We can use our tongues to tear down people. We can, as we get closer to murder and go down that stream, we can get to where we're trying to physically intimidate them or where we harm them in some way to try to get them to do what we want to control or manipulate them. And God, I think through this text, would cause for more restraint than just not killing. He would call for us to have a respect for the fellow human beings that we interact with. We should be careful when there's anger welling up in our hearts or when we start to hear our words be cutting toward a person to say, man, I do not want to treat a fellow image bearer that way. John Calvin said that no one can be injurious to his brother without wounding God himself. Uh, Because they're an image bearer of God, when you cut people down, whether it's in killing them or when you cut them down with your words or your actions, you are wounding even God himself. And so we're to show restraint. 
The third way that I think that we are called to recognize and respect the sanctity of human life is through, I don't know what else to call this, but through execution. Now, there's a jolting principle in this text that I think sometimes we don't actually think much about or we don't contemplate that these are on the very lips of God himself. This is a, a jolting principle that God gives to Noah as he's establishing this covenant with him of what to do when someone does take the life of a human, right? Uh, there was no here, there's no consequence that he articulates of what to do when somebody mistreats an animal, Right? He tells him, like, don't eat the lifeblood, but he doesn't tell him a consequence for what to do if, if somebody does. Right? Uh, but here when he says uh, what somebody takes the life of a human, he does give consequence. He says what to do when someone takes the life of another human being, and it is the steepest of penalties. Right? In verse 5 he says, talking to Noah and his family, he says, for your lifeblood there's going to be something different. Like when your lifeblood is taken... He says, I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it, and from man. From fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. So very simply, what he is saying is when someone takes the life of a human being, he says, even if it's an animal that does it, the consequence that he's laying down for the taking of that life is the death of the killer, that their life is to be taken and I, I think our natural question, at least in our day, is why so severe of a punishment? Like, why such a heavy consequence? Isn't there other ways that we could deal with that? I, I think I'd answer that a few ways. The first would be that it's such a severe punishment because of the audacity of the one who kills. Right? There's a brazenness, a high-handedness in that sin of killing that is unmatched, I think, in other types of sin, where we, in a sense, are placing ourselves in the place of God and saying, he gave this creature, gave this person life, I'm going to take it. Like, we're putting our, ourselves in the place of God. There's a high-handedness to it. But I think probably the, the more specific reason that's in this text of why there's so severe punishment is because of the dignity of the victim. It's not just the audacity of the killer, like we got to get them back, but it's the dignity of the victim that's driving this. Uh, that there's an accounting that's to be done for the lifeblood of that person who died, right? If, if Think about this. If even animals could get put to death for killing a human, that's showing you it's not just the depravity of the killer that is the reason it's so severe of a punishment, right? Because no animal, unless they're way smarter than I know, no animal is like scheming and premeditating, right? And just waiting till the right moment to kill someone. There's not depravity within the animal like there is in a human killer. But he says still, if an animal kills, death to that animal, right? It's showing that the, the death penalty is mostly because of the dignity of the victim, that you are slaying someone who has the very image of God upon them. And I think the last reason for why there's so severe punishment laid down is for it to serve as a deterrent for others. That's not articulated here, but I think that's part of it, uh, that it's to deter others. God had given death as a deterrent to Adam back in the Garden of Eden, right? And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Like it was to be a deterrent to him. It didn't work. And I think God does a similar thing here where he says death is a consequence for killing. And he wants to use it as a deterrent for others. That if the image of God in that person doesn't stay your hand, then maybe the threat of death will. 
And I think that can be a good thing, that it can uh, teach someone restraint. Much else I could say about this. I'll just say briefly, I think here in this command uh, about capital punishment, you have the first uh, instituting of human government, right? Like pre-flood, like people are kind of all doing what's right in their own eyes, right? That they're self-governing, they're kind of doing what they want, responding how they want. Here, God, to these early, or these heads of the human race now, as they're about to get spread out, he lays down principles of how they're to even govern, how they're to regulate even each other's behavior, not just their own, right? And so this is the first instance of the first seed form of human government, right? And it's instituted by God. He's the one who's giving them the responsibility and the authority to enforce his law in the world. God says he requires a reckoning, right? It's his principle, but he says it will come by man. He says that twice in this text, that his justice is implemented by human beings. That's his normal means of working. There's way more I could say and want to say about the subject of capital punishment. If this is something that you would like to talk about more, I would be glad to. There's all sorts of things, like the need for evidence and certainty about the actual crime committed. I know there's potential for corruption in the process of uh, capital punishment that we need to be mindful of, uh, those sorts of things. Um, But I'll just say this, if you have an opposition that wells up within you to this idea of capital punishment, I understand that. I I resonate in some ways with that because I think you probably think, man, if we take the life of the killer, aren't we diminishing the image of God in the killer? Like we're killing to say, don't kill. And that can feel illogical to us. But what I would suggest to you is I think if we don't consider the putting to death of the killer, we're doing, and trying to elevate the image of God and then we're actually diminishing the dignity and the value of the image of God in their victim, right? That, that there's something, that this blood that cries out for justice to be done by the, the sacredness of the life of the victim. And so capital punishment, I think, here is driven by a high view of the dignity of human beings, not a low view of it. All right, last point, and this expands from this text uh, into broader uh, points uh, and a primary point about Christ himself. I I want you, in these last minutes, I want you to lift the eyes of your heart and mind beyond the scales of earthly justice, because that's what this text is mostly talking about, is earthly justice. And I want you to lift your eyes and your mind to think about the scales of eternal justice, Because I think this text should prompt your thoughts that way and steer your hearts that way if you're going to read it rightly. And the last point I want to say to you on this front today is this. It's not just to respect the sanctity of animal life or respect the sanctity of human life. I would want to end this way. It's to rest in the sacrifice of Christ's life. This text, I think if you meditate upon it enough, it's going to push you down roads that are hard to think about even for your own state and your own soul before God. Because what this text shows us, a couple things. It, it shows us, one, God's absolute commitment to justice. Right? He says, I will require a reckoning. Right? It's not just like, I want to. He says, I will. Like there's an accounting, there's a reckoning for human sin uh, that God's justice demands. That he, he can't just turn a blind eye to sin or just wink at it and pretend like it's no big deal. The flood just happened right? Like God's justice is unflinching. He is absolutely committed to it. But in pairing with that, this text, I think, also teaches us an idea of proportionality, 
And what I mean by that is the more severe a crime is, the more severe punishment should be for it, right? That we live by that in our society. We know that as human beings, there's a proportionality. The worse my offense, the worse consequence should be, right? This text is an example of that. Like killing a fellow human being is the worst that we can do, humanly speaking, and the consequence is the worst that can come, right? The taking of that killer's life. And when you pair those two things together, God's absolute commitment to justice, and you think about the proportionality of judgment that should come, like the worse the sin is, the worse judgment should come. You pair those things together, and then you contemplate your own soul. You contemplate your own life and the way you've treated God himself, like not just image bearers, but the way that you have treated God himself. I want you to think what that means Consequence-wise, what should come down upon you, right? Because it's one thing uh, to, well, think of it this way. This text is calling for when someone kills an image bearer, for death to come to them, right? What happens when you offend the one whose image they bear? Is that not more severe? Like, is our offense against, think of like somebody who burns a person in effigy, if you know what that means. Or like they deface a statue of someone, something like that. There's going to be consequence that comes for that, right? They're, they're defacing the image of that person. There's more severe consequence when they actually harm the real flesh and blood person, right? That there's a steeper, more proportional consequence. And so if the consequence for killing an image bearer, like a statue or an effigy of sorts of God is death, what is the consequence for actually harming and doing wrong and rebelling against the God whose image they bear? It's much more severe. It's not earthly justice or temporary justice we're talking about anymore. It is eternal justice. There's eternal judgment that should be coming. There should be an eternal reckoning that happens for our sin and rebellion against God. And that should sober us. It should make us tremble in some ways before this God that we have wronged when we think of the scales of eternal justice. But we know more from this text and for the rest of the scriptures than merely that God is just and that he gives proportional judgments, right? We also know that God is a merciful God, that he's not pure justice. He is also a merciful and gracious God. I want you to think for just a moment of God's mercy even towards killers in the Bible. Like he lays down this law here. If you kill, death comes to you, right, as a general principle. But has God not already shown mercy to one killer in the Bible already, right, to the person of Cain, right? He showed mercy to him. He let him live. Think about this. The man writing Genesis was a killer, Right? Read Exodus 2. Like Moses had killed a man, but God showed him mercy. Right? You think of King David. He schemed to have Uriah killed in battle. Right? Or you think of the Apostle Paul who wrote much of our New Testament. He was actively a part of seeing early Christians put to death. These men were all killers, but God showed mercy to them. He showed grace to them right in the midst of the Bible storyline. So how can that be? Like, how can God be just and say, when you do wrong, there's a proportional judgment that comes, and when you wrong me, there's eternal judgment that should come. Yet, I'm a God who wants to show and will show mercy. How can that be? And that's where I, I want to take you to end today, to the reckoning for sin that happened at the cross of Christ. 
This is where it comes together. God's justice and his mercy come together at the cross of Christ. Because this theme that starts here in Genesis 9 of the sacredness of blood, the power of blood, it keeps getting developed as the Bible storyline unfolds, right? It's just a few books later, we're going to, just the next book of the Bible, we're going to start to, from Mount Sinai, get these laws about sacrifice and the blood of animals being shed. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God said this, he said, that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So that you start to see this story unfold of where the blood of an animal, the blood of someone can be a sacrifice to bring atonement, to make things right with God on behalf of a sinner. But what we know from the biblical storyline is the blood of animals could never truly fully atone for the sins of human beings, right? They can't serve as an adequate stand-in for you or for me or for us. Uh, The numbers don't add up, right? The justice just is not there if an animal is going to die in the place of a human being. But this is where the cross of Christ comes in. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became a human flesh and blood, right, to live among us, And at the cross, what was happening, though he was innocent, was that God in his justice was taking the sins, the eternally weighty, consequential sins of people like me and like you, and he was laying them upon his son. And he put him to death in our place. Like his blood, when we take communion, we say it's his blood was shed for us. Uh, he, He suffered the eternal judgment of God, the infinite wrath of God there at the cross outside Jerusalem that day. He bore that judgment so that we might be set free from it, that we might be released from it. The justice of God was satisfied, and God raised him up on the third day to show that the sacrifice worked, to show, I do, I approve of this sacrifice. Those animals, I didn't raise them back up. Dead as dead could be, but I'm raising him back up to show you that that sacrifice worked for you, for anyone who would come to him by faith. And he is glad, this just God, is glad and willing to show mercy and forgiveness to sinners precisely because of the sacrifice of Christ at the cross. So I want you to contemplate this. There is a reckoning that must take place for your sin. There is. There is a reckoning that must take place for your sin. It will never just evaporate. It will never just disappear. There is a just judgment that must take place, a reckoning And it's going to happen one of two ways. It's either already happened at the cross or it will happen at the return of Christ. One or the other is true. It either has already been paid for by Christ at the cross or it will be paid for by you in eternity when he returns. Like those are the two destinations of your heart and of your soul. Right there, and God is glad to have you receive the latter. Glad to have you uh, be a recipient of the work of Christ at the cross. Moses, he wrote this book of Genesis. He also wrote the first whole five books of the Bible, and near the end, of, or about the middle of the last one, he wrote Deuteronomy. And then I'll end with this. I promise. Deuteronomy eighteen, uh, he wrote about. Uh, how God told him about how someday there was going to be this prophet who would come. God told Moses, someday there's going to be this prophet who will come. 
And he used, in talking about this prophet to come, who we know to be Jesus, he used language that's very similar to what we've read today in Genesis 9 about how he's going to require something. He's going to require a reckoning if people don't listen to that prophet. Uh, that there's going to be judgment if they don't listen to that prophet. This is what he said. God said to Moses, he said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And hear this, he says, Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God was saying, Moses, I don't think, fully understood what all that meant quite yet. But God was saying, I'm sending that long-awaited crusher of the serpent someday who's going to represent me, and his name's going to be Jesus, and I'm going to give him a message to speak, and humans are going to have a choice whether they listen to him or not. They're going to have a choice whether they bend their knee to him in faith or whether they reject him like all humans before and after are prone to. But what God is saying to Moses, and is still true to this day, is your eternity rests on how you respond to that prophet. Do you listen to him or do you reject him? Like, do you receive what he's saying as true and do what he says or do you close your ears to him and run away in disobedience? Because Jesus said in his life and he would still say today from heaven things like this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus says that to humanity today. Come to me. I suffered for you. I was raised for you. Come to me in faith. Come to me in repentance. Jesus would say, come to me, all you who've taken the life of the unborn. Like, come to me, all you who have killed, all you who have abused, all you who have mistreated people, taken advantage of my image bearers, all you who have torn down my image bearers with your tongue, right? all of you who have ignored me, All of you who've made fun of me or mocked me, all of you who have found me uninteresting or unappealing, Jesus is saying, all of you come to me. I will receive you. Like I I will receive you with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Come to me. And our eternity rests on whether we listen to him or not. Do we come to him in faith? Do we come to him in repentance or not? There will be a reckoning uh, for our sin, either at his cross or at his return. So, Just to recap, respect the sanctity of animal life, respect the sanctity of human life, but most of all, as a fellow sinner, may you rest in the sacrifice of Christ's life. Amen.